0: three, 3:2, O Lord, I have heard report of you, of your work. O Lord, do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. If you flipped with me to Romans 1, 18 through 24, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and the creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to the impurity, to the dishonesty, to the well, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then First John five twenty-one. Little children, keep yourselves from idols this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Have you ever noticed that with a new year, there feels like there's this newness of life that comes into play, right? Like it feels like there's an opportunity for a fresh start, doesn't there? Um, You have a new year. It's a new calendar season. There's a new reality that's ahead. In fact, many people are using the hashtag new year, new me. And it, it, it and, you know, here's what I want to do sometimes when that happens is uh, I want to call Chase or Wells Fargo and say, hey, hey, listen, guys, it's a new year. So can, can we just kind of forget about the past? Can we just kind of forget about the, the debt that's owed to you? And, and just let's start a new let's start a brand new relationship and let's get this thing uh, completely off to a fresh start. And they'll say, sure, your minimum balance is, and the interest rate has just jacked up. And they're also asking if you want credit counseling from here on out. Um, You know, there's a a, a reality that we enter into that says life can change. I think that's what's exciting about the new year. Your life doesn't have to stay the same. And so that inspires us for New Year's resolutions. That inspires us to think about a new and better me. The way I can be a better father, a husband, a better pastor, a better friend, a better leader. Those things are inspiring, but at the same time, there's some baggage that has to be dealt with. And if that baggage is going to be dealt with, the answer isn't addressing the symptom of the problems... The answer is addressing the heart of the issues. For example, the answer to your debt problem isn't simply just spending less money. It's asking the question, why? Why is this problem a problem to begin with? And we're not going to talk about financial peace or things like that, although that is very much uh, an important thing. But what we are going to talk about is how we have to go deeper than the symptom of the problem. And we have to get to the root of the problem in order to see our lives changed. In order to see our lives changed. Last week we sang a song, New Wine. And that song has become a prayer of mine this week. That God, you would give us new wine. And for new wine, there has to be new wineskins. Because there's no point in putting new wine in old wineskins. Because you ruin the wine. That was the illustration that you have in the Old Testament. But if there's something new that has to happen in us, that newness isn't going to be without change. And that's where we come to kind of fall into problems with New Year's resolutions. We can't just zap ourselves. I just wish I could kind of zap some people and say, man, if they could just be better, I'm sure there's some people that would like to zap me, by the way, as well. So no offense taken. Uh, No offense given, hopefully, none taken on my end. If you want to zap me, I want to zap me too. If we could just kind of make this the new and better me, you know, kind of like the Matrix, you know, you just download a program and you know how to fly a helicopter. That would be really, really powerful and really, really good but that's not reality the reality is is that change goes deep and change is going against our heart and the thing that really needs to change at the core of our being is our desires because that's what God wants for himself that's what God says belongs to me you know God is very much concerned with our obedience He's very much concerned with us following his word and pursuing after him in the things that we do. But the thing that God is most concerned about, because it's reflected in our obedience, is our heart. Because it's our heart that God longs for. He gave us a heart to worship him and him alone. And in fact, it says in Exodus 20 verse 3, he says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the... The first commandment of all the Ten Commandments starts there. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And think about the rap sheet that God has with the Israelites at this moment. He brought them out of bondage in slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He brought them to God's holy hill at Mount Sinai. He gave them his perfect word, the Ten Commandments. And he says, let's make a deal here. Let's make a deal here. If you follow this, if you live in accordance to the commands I have for you, things are going to go well for you. If you don't, they won't. And, you know, all human history is really about the fact that we, not that we couldn't keep all 10 commands, but we broke the first one over and over and over and over again. And so today what we're talking about is that our love has to be greater than the grip of idolatry on our hearts. And I think that I think that I want to pray for you in this moment. I want to pray for me because here's the reality is Satan is, is just fighting this right now because he wants our hearts in bondage. He wants us to worship the false gods of this world. He is less concerned of us even acknowledging him if all we are is distracted by God and disillusioned by him so that we leave him And so I wanna pray because I do believe right now there's going to be a tug of war that's happening for my heart and yours. So let's ask God to have control and to gain it. Father, we give you, we give you our hearts right now. God, we, we know that they're not pure and they're not perfect, but we also know that that's only a work that you can do. So God, I ask that there would be a time where in this word that's being delivered you would deliver us from the lies of the enemy father god that those lies would be replaced by your truth and that your truth would be believed and that as we believe your truth god we would receive your truth and know god no matter how hard that truth might be to hear god you have given us everything in your son jesus christ so the punishment for believing the lies has been paid for so God, we can come to you right now in honesty and know that there's no wrath or retribution that awaits us for those who trust in Christ, but only your grace and mercy. And so we ask, God, that you would allow the truth to be the truth that we receive about you so that we would love you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen. Habakkuk 3.2, O oh Lord, I have heard a report of your work. I've heard a report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We're not going to unpack the book of Habakkuk, but Habakkuk speaks this into a time of trial. He speaks this into a time of difficulty with the people of God. He speaks it into a time where the locusts have stolen the joy of the land and where it feels like everything is desperate. All you have to do is read Habakkuk chapter 1 and you kind of get the picture of what's going on there. Habakkuk is actually asking the question, what's going on, Lord? But by chapter 3, he's coming to this reality saying, oh Lord, I've heard a report of you. There's been some stuff that I have know you've done. There's been some stuff that I've even witnessed you do. There's some things that show the evidence of you, the power of you, the grace of you, the mercy of you. Lord, would you take that work and would you renew it in our day and in our time? Would you bring revival to this land? I mean, that's a, a prayer for Habakkuk and that prayer that was prayed so long ago, ancient prayer is a prayer we're reading today and a prayer that is the prayer of mine for our church and for our city today, because kind of like the time of Habakkuk and the people of God in that time period, things seem desperate, don't they? If if you've been a part of the church for any given period of time, in, in my generation at least, and I would say maybe even over the course of American history, our country's history, the church seems more on decline than ever. How do I know that? Well, I always used to have. This is kind of a personal. This is not scientific measurement, by the way. It's just, just my own, my own philosophy. Um, you know, as a pastor, one of the most awkward questions that you get is that question: um, "What do you do? What do you do?" And like, why do you ask? Uh, what I do, um, uh, and and that's always somewhat been a, a hard question. In fact, just the other day. Uh, met one of our new neighbors, uh, came across the street, and uh, she noticed that we had some gatherings last year. We had the Thanksgiving feast and things where people were parked in the in the yard and all that kind of stuff. And she just so graciously said, hey, if you want to use my yard or my easement for parking for things in the future, that'd be great. And I said, yeah, that, that'd be awesome. She's, I said, we have those a lot of times. I'm a pastor of a local church here. And she goes, I know. I uh, know i don 't even know who you are, and you know i 'm a pastor like who 's telling her that i 'm a pastor and like what 's going on in there and so my mind 's already thinking about those things, but you you have these 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 questions that come and and you you kind of start to second guess yourself and part of the reason why even today you start to guess your, second guess yourself is because there 's a little bit of curiosity in folks that are asking about your profession and they, they want to know more because the church is in a place of decline you feel that when you ask when you're asked that question and when you even talk about that and you feel that from the people that are asked that are talking to you and asking the question because they know what we know is that the church is not in the height of where we have been and so there's some difficulty that we feel and so that prayer becomes all the more important and so over the last year, you, you may have even read the headlines: The Catholic Church, there was some news out of Pennsylvania where there's sexual abuse that has been running rampant there, oh, and, and it's happened over decades, and they've been suppressing that story, and now it's come out and the New York Times came out like with a headline that said, "Tears of a Grieving Church." there is a A church called Willow Creek that was so powerful for uh, for many of you, we 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 uh, have grown up in boomer style churches or seeker sensitive style churches. There was a style that they kind of pioneered and brought to reality that have done some really great things uh, for the church movement across the country. Uh, A guy named Bill Hybels was the leader of that, the visionary of that. And Bill Hybels, over the last year, it came out that. Uh, There was some sexual misconduct that is happening in his life. And the elders trusted his word over the words of others. And so they didn't listen to the accusations that were around them. And it came back that they should have listened to their accusations. And the whole Willow Creek Elder Board resigned. Even their their, their newly appointed pastors that came in to step in for Bill Hybels post his retirement. And so you have these leaders that you look towards for credibility and authenticity and honesty and you don't get credibility and you don't get authenticity and you don't get honesty. And so when I say I'm a pastor, it's kind of like I think, when, when's that gonna happen to me? When's that gonna happen to us? What's the things ahead for us? But then I'm reminded that it's in those moments of desperation where God's light shines the brightest. Oh Lord, I've heard a report of you. I've heard of your work. I can point to the times where the Israelites had, had felt enslaved by Pharaoh and were in bondage and they wondered what was coming next. How would they ever get out of this? And in the Zero dark 30 moment. God comes through and brings them out of bondage and into freedom. And the whole reason why God brought the Israelites out of bondage in slavery in Egypt is because he wanted them to worship him fully and finally. That they would give their lives completely to Jehovah, the Lord who redeemed them. And this is the cry of God. This is the cry of us for God in our lives, in our generations, is God, would you renew a pure worship in our hearts? Would you renew revival in our hearts so that we would give ourselves completely and totally to you? John 10.10 10 says, the thief came, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life, and have it abundantly. In the prayer I prayed earlier, it was a prayer that says that this tug of war that exists for our life is that we would give ourselves to the destruction of Satan or we would give ourselves to the abundant life that only God gives in Jesus Christ. There's no real middle ground there. There's no middle ground at all. In fact, Jesus says really clearly you can give yourself to the work of the enemy that only leads to your destruction, or you can give yourself to the abundant life, a life that I am calling you. And you see the echoes of this all through scriptures as Jesus himself says that the greatest commandment from Deuteronomy 6 chapter 4 is to love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, that you would give yourself fully to the love of God. This is the most weighty command. It's not a command of obedience. It's a command of the heart. It's a command where God wants every part of you. And this is how the Christian is called to live. And the reason why we chose Romans chapter 1 verse 18 for this week's text on a greater love of God is because If we're going to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, then we have to realize that the attacks of the enemy and the enslavement and deception of the enemy come with a heart that's given to idolatrous desires. We don't really have a reference point for idolatry here in the United States very well. You you, you think of idolatry and you think of the, the man who's riding his scooter in the dirt roads of India and sees a statue of Buddha and stops and says a prayer and drops a few coins at the statue in that moment. That's what we kind of think is idolatry, but we don't really see the idolatry in our own hearts, in our own cultures as much. In fact, you're actually really good at this in your life, because I know I'm really good at my, this in my life, is I'm really good at seeing the sins and shortcomings of others, but I really fall short when it comes to seeing the sins and shortcomings of my own life. It's the same as true of idolatry. We can see when someone is giving an inordinate amount of affection towards something or someone else, and it's causing their life to be out of order, but we struggle. We fail to see that when we do that in ourselves. We fail to see that in our own hearts, in our own lives. And so what's necessary for us to have a greater love of God is to see how we give those lesser loves to things that are unworthy of that love. And it becomes a disordering of our lives, a disordering of our heart, a disordering of our our actions that really leads to a life of destruction, a life that feels like it's been stolen at at the end of the day. But this is the life that Christ steps in to redeem. This is the life that Christ steps in to make new and give us strength to fight the good fight of faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him uh, just last week, and uh, he, was, he, he was a, a German uh, pastor in the time of the Nazi Third Reich. Many of him would consider him a martyr of his time. He was executed in a Nazi concentration camp because he had given his life... ...to the work of God in the church, but he also realized that if that was going to happen, then something had to happen within Adolf Hitler. And he was part of Valkyrie, if you you might know that story, uh, to where he wanted to see the assassination or or the replacement of uh, uh, Adolf Hitler... And so when it was later revealed that he was a part of that, and as the Nazi regime was dying down, they were killing off more people. And not long before the Nazis, uh, the, the Nazi concentration camps had the liberators come in, um, a, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was killed in that Nazi concentration camp. A little bit about him. But he was passionate about a credible... ...and truthful and honest church. The Confessing Church is the church he was a part of. And he was passionate about the church remaining true to God... ...in the midst of the changing world around them... ...where much of the world was given, the, was given towards the horror and tragedy of Nazi Germany... ...turning a blind eye to the annihilation of the Jewish people... It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, said, we cannot do that. I will not do that. And so he started a seminary in modern-day Poland at a place called Finkenwald. And at Finkenwald, he had these men and women who were gathered there in the radical way of Christianity. When I say radical way of Christianity, I mean that they were regularly in prayer, three times a day, together. Morning, noon, and night, there was a discipline of prayer. They would discipline themselves in giving themselves to God's word and also the confession of God's word and their sins to one another. It was really important that they were able to honestly deal with their sins, confess their sins, and allow their brothers and sisters to help them in pursuing a life of obedience and holiness in the Lord. And many would see what what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did and thought it was radical, thought it was a bit too much. In fact, one of his friends took a trip up to Finkenwald and saw Dietrich Bonhoeffer there and saw what was going on in the seminary and said to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, this is too much. Isn't it a bit radical? Aren't you doing too much here? Is it really necessary? I mean, I know the way of the the German church at this point, and I know the disillusionment that that's causing in you, but isn't this rather reactionary to what's going on? And so they went on a boat ride and it was on one of the rivers and they stopped and they uh, went to a, a hill that overlooked the Nazi German army. The planes were taking off and landing and Dietrich Bonhoeffer pointed down at them and he said, do you see their loyalty? Do you see their commitment? Do you see their devotion to the Fuhrer? He said to them, if we are going to do anything of value in our broken world. This must be stronger than that. He said, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. This must be stronger than that. And so the the thing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer advocated for was a stronger love a stronger loyalty, a stronger commitment than the tormentors of the world in that day and time. And the thing that when God calls us to a greater love, he's calling us to that love. A love that's stronger, a love that's greater, a love that's fully devoted, and a love that renounces idolatry. And so our reference point of idolatry isn't just the things that are the inanimate objects that people bow and worship, but the reference point of idolatry are the things in our life that sit on the throne where only God should sit. If we are going to be a church that loves God with our whole heart, that shows the world a greater love, a greater worship, a a greater compassion, a greater mercy, he has to be on the throne. There can be no competition Because if we show them a lesser love, we're showing them the same love that they've seen over and over and over again. And the reason why the world is pushing eject on the church today is because they say, I've seen it, I'm doing it right now, and I don't want what you have to offer. I am not going to say that my life is lived for God, but yet live for these other things. It's just not worth it. Because the church is called to a pure devotion towards Christ. And so understanding idolatry is understanding that reality. Romans uh, chapter 1 verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, it says. There is a chief indictment upon the Gentiles. Paul was writing this to the Roman church, many of whom were Gentiles. And the Gentiles, as what Paul was saying, was blind to the reality of who God was. And it wasn't because they couldn't see God. God is clearly perceived in creation. He's clearly known from the creation of the world that you have the beauty of creation that demonstrates the awesome power and might of God that might just make us say there's something out there that's greater than me. There's something out there that's greater than this world. And he says all humanity knows that, but the indictment on humanity isn't that we know God's creative power but that we don't know God and so therefore we cannot honor God we cannot receive God but we reject God and as a result of that rejection of God their foolish hearts were darkened meaning they were deceived they were deceived because that's what idolatry does it is deception this is why it's easy for us to see the idolatry of those around us but not seeing in ourselves and And as we see the idolatry of the world around us, and we call it as it is, but we're not willing to look into our own hearts, we become hypocrites. And that's oftentimes what the church is known for, is our hypocrisy. They were created to know God, love God, and trust in God. But they gave themselves to a lie. And idols, understanding idolatry, we have to understand that idols are work to kind of fill this emptiness in our heart. We pursue idols for joy. We pursue idols for meaning. And we pursue idols for identity. In other words, we, we seek idols to give us happiness, to give us purpose, and to define who we are. These are the things that are, are, are necessary for our, our, our life. Tim Keller, uh, he wrote the standard On idolatry, he says, What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. We, we tend to look at idolatry as the bad things. And so we don't look at the things that we can actually get really consumed by in our life as a, a hindrance to our worship of God. For example, uh, I, I'm a dad and I have children. And one of the greatest struggles of idolatry in, in my life can actually be my family. And I think that I'm just trying to be a family man. I'm just trying to serve my family. I'm just trying to do these things for the sake of my wife and my kids but all the while, if I put them in the place of God, what I've done is I've created a God substitute. I've created a counterfeit God and I'm worshiping something that is a false reality of what should be. And I'm putting my kids in a place, in my family, in a place where only God belongs. And so I'm, dis- and so it's a disservice to them and it's a disservice to God. And so we take these things that are good things and we make them God things and we bow down towards them. Romans 6:16 6, says, "Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either sin which leads to death, or obedience which leads to righteousness." Idols deceive and idols also enslave. It says that uh, Paul says that they worship and serve these created things. Idolatry demands that we put all of our trust in these things for our life. You've seen people who might have an inordinate love for money, an addiction for money. Why is that? Because money provides them certainty that they don't believe that God can provide for them. That's what makes money in idol. Money provides a certainty that causes them to take their trust that belongs to God and place it upon money and say, this is what provides me. And if I just have enough of it, if I just financially plan enough, if I just have my retirement account stockpiled to towards this certain amount, all of life becomes certain. So therefore, all of life becomes under my control. And so if that is the thing that drives you. Money's the thing that drives you. Then money's the thing that God so graciously wants to pull your hands away from that so that you can worship Him and Him alone. So you understand that idolatry is anything that takes the place of Jesus in our life. Number two is you have to recognize those idols. What are the things that sit on the throne of your life? Tim Keller, again, it talks about two types of idolatry. He says there's surface idols and there's root idols. He says the surface idols are the things that are pretty visible and easy to see. It's things like sex, money. It's things like vacation. It's leisure time. It's children. It's marriage. It's romance. It's beauty. It's entertainment. It's career. Those are the things at the surface. Those are the symptom problems of idolatry. But he says, every idol is connected to a root. Every surface idol is connected to a root idol. Those are the motivational desires, the desires of our heart that says, in my heart, I say I need this thing because it is giving me something that ultimately I should look to God for. And those things are power, approval, comfort, and control. Power, approval, comfort, and control. For example, the surface idol of career is something that many people will pursue because if they can continue to climb that ladder of their career and get to that next step, it gives them power over others. And that power over others causes them to feel a sense of freedom, to feel like nobody can come against them. And so there's this insatiable, appetite for power over others that's seen in career advancement or maybe going to school for another degree or some type of advancement that allows me to have more power over others in order to protect my life money for example is something that is pursued after because money provides comfort comfort if i have enough money then my life is more secure if I have enough money, then I'm able to determine more of what I do with my life. And if I'm able to determine more of what I do with my life, it means that I'm the one that's in control. And so money is a surface idol that's used for control, and it's used for comfort, and it's used in order to replace God and substitute God. For where we should seek after, uh, where we seek after God, we're actually seeking after money. And so it rules our heart... What rules our throne is not in God we trust, but in the dollar, in the dollar bill. Then finally, you see this root idolatry making its way in our lives through approval. Approval is a heart, our desire that, that people would think well of us. In fact, I think many of the things that I have to repent of in going into ministry is thinking that, man, if I go into ministry, then I'll get the approval that I longed for. People will like me. Well, I've realized that's not true. (laughs) I've realized that's a false idol. But at the same time, I have to realize that there is something in me that's seeking to advance in ministry for people's approval, people's applause, that only God gives me that approval. And, And so... To break the bondage of idolatry means that we have to break the bondage of the chains that hold us down. We have to get into the heart issues. Why am I seeking approval from others when I know that the God who created me gave me in Christ all the approval that I need? Right? Why am I seeking in others the approval that I should seek in Christ? And it just, dry, it just irks us so much when there's that person that doesn't like us or doesn't agree with us. We feel like we have to win them over for the sake of ourselves. And it becomes rather about us and not the kingdom. Or, or, or maybe it's It's control. And if control is your idol, then it works itself out in many of these different ways. But it's this desire for you to be the one that gets to determine the direction of your life when the Bible says that he's the one that determines our steps. And so you're, you're pleading for control or you're moving towards trying to control your life is causing you to be more dependent upon the things of this world and less dependent upon God. And so it's causing your heart to be divided and your worship not to be towards God and God alone. And so we have to realize that these are things that have hurt us and have ruined us. And then finally, we have to realize that we must repent of our idolatry. We recognize those idols in our lives. We diagnose them and we repent of our idolatry by turning to Christ. When Carrie and I had children, um, it was after a hard-fought struggle with infertility. We prayed that God would give us these kids. We prayed that God would move in miraculous ways. We sought doctors. And it was uh, through that time that I had realized, and I realize it even now today, that, that there was a good desire that God gave us for our children. But at the same time, there was an idolatrous desire that we were pursuing after, and that God wanted to redeem and renew. And restore, and in some ways, and I'll tell you this in in, in my heart. In some ways, is a struggle still today to make our family as it put the, our family on the place of the altar of God. And so, when we when we were going through this, you, you could imagine when your prayers are given towards this, and when your energy and when your money is going towards this, you know, your whole life is saying, "I have to have this thing." And God was gracious in breaking that in us in that time. But there is also a story in the Old Testament that we were able to look to. And the story was the story of Abraham. Where Abraham was longing for a son, an heir, for for, for his name to continue. If you didn't have a son, then you didn't have anything in that time period. And God had promised Abraham this son, Isaac. He will be the, you will be the father of many nations, God says to Abraham. My promise will prevail. There's certainty in what I tell you. But year after year, day after day, would God come through with his promise? And then finally, God gave them his son Isaac. And as God gave him his son Isaac, you you, you got to imagine that this son that he waited so long for, maybe he was putting his trust in his son to fulfill God's promise. Versus the God who fulfills his promise. Maybe Isaac was taking that place of God. And he struggled with this idolatry in his own heart and life. I got him to imagine that, that that may have happened. Well Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She gives us this account. She says this. God knew that his secret rescue plan could only work if Abraham trusted him completely. God had to make sure Abraham would do whatever he asked. So a few years later, God asked Abraham to give him a present. Abraham liked giving presents to God. He gave God his animals. They were called sacrifices, and they were his way of saying, I love you to God. But this time, God didn't want a lamb or a goat. God wanted Abraham to give him something more, much more. He wanted Abraham to give him his son, his only son, the son he loved, Isaac. Put, put his boy on the altar and kill him as a sacrifice? How could God want him to do such a terrible thing? Abraham didn't understand, but he knew that God, his father who loved God was his father who loved him. So Abraham trusted him. Early the next morning, Abraham and Isaac set off. They climbed the steep, stony trail up the mountain. Isaac carried the wood on his back. His father carried the knife and the coals. Papa, Isaac said, we have everything except we forgot the lamb for the sacrifice. God will give us the lamb, son, Abraham said. They built an altar and they laid the wood up on the top. Abraham asked his son to climb on the wood. Isaac didn't understand, but he knew his father loved him, so he trusted him. He climbed up on the altar, and Abraham tied his boy to the wood. Isaac didn't struggle to try to run away. He just lay there quietly, and he didn't make a sound. Everything was ready. Abraham took the knife. Tears were filling his eyes. Pain was filling up his heart. His hand was shaking. He lifted the knife high into the air. Stop! God said don't hurt the boy I want him to live and not to die I know now that you love me because you would have given me your only son Abraham felt his heart leap with joy he unbound Isaac and folded him in his arms Great sobs shook the old man's whole whole body. uh, Scalding tears filled his eyes. And for a long time, they stayed there like that, in each other's arms, the boy and his dad. (laughs) Can you imagine that embrace? Suddenly, Abraham saw a ram caught in some brambles, the sacrifice. God had given them what they needed just in time. The ram would die so Isaac didn't have to. And so Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of his son. And as they sat there on the mountaintop, watching the embers of fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live and not to die. God wanted to rescue his people and not to punish them.
0: But they must trust
1: him. One day, someone will be born into your family, God promised them. And he will bring happiness to the world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back like Isaac. He would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Church, listen, your idolatry came at a great price. And the price was not that you would pay for your sin or the wrath of God would bear against you, as it says in Romans 118 but the wrath of God would bear against him. And as I sat with my son on Friday and we talked about our sin struggle and our rebellion, I realized that my son, my only son, won't die for his sin. But God's only son already has. And so when we pursue the freedom and forgiveness of God in pure worship of Him, know that God has given us everything necessary for this life and the life to come. And God will not hold back by the power of His Holy Spirit anything you need to devote your life fully and finally to Him. That we can run from those idols and return to Lord Jesus and walk in repentance. Let's pray. Father. We need you. We need you. Would you help us? Would you help us forsake the idols of our lives, the things that God steal, kill, and destroy, the things that cause us to be enslaved? And God, would you help us turn to you? Redeem, God, our broken hearts. Make them new. And God, even today, allow a pure worship to arise from this place. A lot of pure heartedness to, to come from our feeble words and songs, God. God, give them meaning. Give them purpose. Allow every heart in this place to be de- fully devoted to you. And God, would you, would you do the hard work in us to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And we know, Lord, that in doing so, all the things that you desire will be added unto us. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen. Let's worship together.